Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the practical applications of precognition or applied precognition. My guest is John Knowles, who's been active in the remote viewing field for 20 years. He is co-author with Deborah Katz of the book Associative Remote Viewing. John is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, John. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Jeff. It's also great to be here, and you've done so many great shows. It's a privilege to be invited. You've been involved in remote viewing for over two decades, and I think it's very interesting that you've worked in many different capacities as a trainer, as a project manager, and as a remote viewer. So you've had a chance to appreciate the complexities of remote viewing from many different perspectives. Yes, indeed. It's been a, a pleasure to be in three different groups. Uh, Transdimensional Systems, which was the first successful remote viewing company, uh, Applied Precognition Project with Marty Rosenblatt and many other people, and then the Aurora Remote Viewing Group, which was the first multi-method group. Uh, we were on three continents. Uh, we tried to go operational. didn't work out great, but we learned a lot. And then in addition, I've hosted this uh, website called 120+. Plus which tries to keep track of any place you might want to go in remote viewing with links. And so some new folks from Reddit have taken that over. So I'm very pleased with that. Well, I think it's fair to say you have a very good overview of the field. I hope so. Yeah, I've been at it for 20 years. So. And in, in your 20 years of experience, one of the things that you mentioned to me earlier that is unique in your case, is that you've used remote viewing successfully to predict lottery numbers. Yes, I have. And if I could say something about what we have in our book uh, on associative remote viewing that Deborah Lynn Katz and I just produced, um, people say, well, you can, if you're so psychic, why don't you win the lottery? So actually, there are two, at least two examples of major wins that we put in our book. The folks don't really want to talk a lot about who they are, but we know one of them, a woman in Massachusetts who won $101,000 using an interoceptive method where she just sensed her body, whether it was going to be a number or not, from the throat feeling and from her stomach feeling. There was another win of $325,000 by a group using, a, using 49 pictures for 49 numbers and having a division of labor where one person was just the judge. And very important there, we put, they allowed us to put this in the book, their method. Very important there is to replace the pictures uh, that are actually come up on a number and not use the same photos every time. The ones that come up as hits, you have to discard those photos. That's their take. And they give a lot of other tips about how to win. Uh, their lottery, and they've won some other lotteries too, which they uh, haven't shared with us. Um, for myself, yes, I, I was curious about the lottery for a long time because we were told in remote viewing that you can't get numbers and words. 
Um, and so I went into that, uh, and I, I did a, whole, a lot of experiments over 20 years, and finally came up with a method that somehow produces plenty of pick three and pick four wins. And I describe that in detail in the book. Well, one of the fascinating things about your book, the one that you and Deborah co-authored, Associative Remote Viewing, is that the variations on the methodology are just enormous. You, you probably report on dozens and dozens of, of different methodological approaches. It would seem as if everybody in the field tries to find a methodology that matches their personality. And I wonder, though, from my perspective, whether this focus on the particulars of methodology are, are really crucial. And the reason I bring that up is I remember years ago when I first had an interest in associative remote viewing, I had a conversation with my friend Gary Zukoff, the author of Seed of the Soul, about this sort of thing. And his answer was when people try to use precognition in order to make money in speculation or investing, the results they get will be dependent upon their personal karma. In other words, the spiritual concerns, the psychological concerns are much more important than methodology. First, Joe McMonagle in a way agrees with that, saying that it's all psychological, it's all in your head, uh, and Marty agrees with that. But on the other hand, Joe McMonagle, who's of course very successful, um, says that the protocols can matter. So he seems to have it both ways. I wanted to point out that the most common form of associated remote viewing is binary, where you have two photos or two photo sites. Marty uh, Rosenblatt called them photo sites because you can get information that's at the site as well as at the photo. Well, having worked with uh, Marty for some years for, rather closely, I can, my conclusion is that if you posit two targets, you will get displacement often to both targets, meaning you will get either a lot of good data for the wrong target, the one that doesn't objectify, that doesn't match the winning team, or you'll get data from both. So what's the solution to that? So for some years, I promoted a unitary ARV, which at first, uh, dear Marty, who's a wonderful guy and really advanced the field, resisted. But now he acknowledges whatever the stats show will be where it's at. So in unitary ARV, and I have a video of that, um, you have just one target. It might be just one photo. And you, you score the session against that one photo. And if it's adequate, you then bet or you may pass. You can also use emotions. And Dr. Don Walker, who is a chiropractor in uh, San Diego and also was on the uh, public remote viewing team of transdimensional systems, came up with the idea of using emotions to try to to garner whether a team is going to win or not. You use anonymous uh, pitchers or managers or fans. So we tried that in 2006 and we had some pretty good success. And since then, there have been others who've tried unitary ARV, but 99% of associative remote viewing is binary. The statistics so far uh, show that at least with APP, which has done thousands and thousands, in the groups, the overall success rate has fallen from what it was at 60% to around 
in uh, unitary ARV, there have been 100 and, uh, about 175 trials, and it's about a 60% success rate. And some people may say, well, that 60% doesn't sound like very much. But actually, some years ago, a fellow from Britain who works for a major sports book uh, said, you know, we can only get 52 to 53% accuracy, even with all the tools we have and all the information. You guys have a floor of 60%, which we did back then. So he wanted us to provide many sessions for Australian soccer, which he bet on every weekend, thousands of pounds, but we couldn't provide that many sessions. So there's a lot of different facets to this, as you say, and, and the one that I want to focus on here is the difference between binary and unitary, and I hope more people, like Daz Smith, has recently uh, used some uh, unitary and, and has some good results, about 67%. Well, I'd like to step back, uh, if we can, John, and talk about the, the very concept that you can use precognition for personal financial advantage. I think many people are going to find it a, a, a strange concept. And I know since you've been involved in doing this work for decades, it seems sort of matter of fact to you. But to the, I think to the average viewer of this program who's not necessarily part of the remote viewing community, it's as strange as can be. And one of the reasons for that, I suspect, is because uh, what you're doing is setting up uh, what one of my guests, Eric Wargo, uh, calls a time loop. You're, you're actually using the future to influence the present somehow. In other words, backwards causality. And a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. Uh, I wonder how you relate to it. Well, I come from a materialist background, uh, uh, Marxist actually, uh, and somehow this all makes sense to me. I don't actually speculate whether there's future uh, co retro causation or not. Maybe, maybe so, maybe not. I'm really oriented with the practical results. And so I understand that people, some people say, well, this is against the Bible or it's against spiritual beliefs. Um, I th Russell Targ had success with nine predictions in the Silver's future the first time, and then the second time it failed, and he thought maybe there was something wrong. It took him a couple of years to recover from that, but he decided you can make money in the universe. The universe is not holding it against two. Someone else criticized me for uh, quoting Ingo Swan, who actually did try to win the lottery and did not. Um, that Ingo was all about psych uh, spiritual development and uh, all of those areas in consciousness. And I said to this, this person, look, you know, Ingo himself uh, tried to win the lottery. Ingo played the horses. You can do both. You know, it depends on your, your belief system. There are several issues here. One is the issue of ethics. Uh, that you're, you're bringing up or whether it's consistent to use what some people think of as a spiritual ability for personal gain. That, that's one issue. But the other issue is, um, how can I couch it? Uh, maybe it has more to do with karma or, uh, the very possibility of seeing the future and using it for gain because it would seem as if uh, if one had a clear vision of the future if you if you could get let's say into the i'll call it let's let's say if you could consistently hit 
uh, and you're wagering and, and speculating 65%, why, after a period of time, you'd be the richest person on the planet. Curiously enough, I'm not motivated that way myself. I wanted to see if we could get numbers, and I'm self-critical for not actually remote viewing past numbers. I've been remote viewing future numbers, the lottery. And when Marty, when I learned about Marty's work, Marty said, look, money talks in society. Um, if we can demonstrate that we can win money with remote viewing, that'll help get it mainstream. Um, but Marty also has evolved to the, the point of view that, you know, consciousness is the fundamental and that uh, we're all connected. And I certainly agree that we're all connected. I'm not so sure fun, fun, uh, consciousness is the fundamental. So again, it depends on your I understand that a lot of people, uh, we have a very religious-based country going way back, and we, we see the results of it still today. Um, I don't have those religious beliefs. I go on my own experience. And as far as ethics, uh, for example, someone wrote to me one time and said, my brother is missing in India. Will you we won't view him uh, for me? What happened to him? And I resisted for some time because better it's better to work with the police but I did, and we put together a team. And so there I am remote viewing, or I'm sorry, the, the reviewers are remote viewing people in India that they don't know. And they're, you know, they're violating their privacy, some people would say. That's violating their spiritual dimension, perhaps. I didn't see it that way. This woman was desperate to find her brother. We did come up with a lot of good data, she said, but we never did solve the case. She was, not, she was unable to solve the case. And it's a good lesson, probably don't remote view for someone in a far country that you really can't, uh, you don't know the customs, you can't really be there. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. So I don't know if that answers, you know, some of the concerns that people have, but that's my take on it. There are lots of applications of remote viewing aside from precognition in law enforcement and in the military. I know that these days and, and for, for decades now, the most prominent people in the field of remote viewing either were in the military or received funding from military intelligence. And you have described yourself as having a Marxist background, very different than these fellows from the military. Indeed. Um, and so I've sort of tried to lay low all these years um, because to me, uh, that the fact that the CIA and the DIA were funding the Stanford Research Institute uh, is not a good thing. Uh, I almost consider it a tragedy knowing the history of the CIA. I'm an old guy. I've been around for the 60s and 70s. And, and the CIA was a despicable organization and it still does things, I believe, in our name that is not good. Nonetheless, uh, the uh, Folks came out of the military, and they've uh, more or less dominated the training aspects and the, and the International Remote Viewing Association. So I, again, I try to to be fairly quiet and uh, and not you know stick that and try to stick that in people's faces. One of the interesting aspects that you report in your book are people who will draw diagrams of the daily price movements of a, a financial instrument like a stock or a commodity, they create a picture so you can see during the day, is it going to go straight down? Is it going to go up and then down or up and down and up again and, 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 and so on like that? It doesn't strike me that that's associative remote viewing. It seems like to me it's direct precognition and it might be useful for 
the benefit of our viewers to d distinguish between associative remote viewing and simply uh, using precognition directly without an association. Yes, that, that was quite curious. It seemed like and several people in the, in the world simultaneously started doing this thing called wowsing, according to Julia Mossbridge, whose husband came up with a name where you just draw the graph. And in our book, we discuss whether that's associative or not. You could take either position about it. To give another example, so when I came up with uh, what I call strict unitary ARV, um, using emotions, uh, some people said, and at first I thought that was not associative because you're just viewing emotions uh, and you're not, supposedly you're not associating something with something else for the outcome. But if you are only doing it, if you're only getting emotions from a game and to predict the outcome of the game, you keep doing that. To me, that's associative remote viewing. And I was reading um, Stanislaus Dehaene's book, uh, Consciousness and the Brain. He's a wonderful, wonderful author. He's a stone reductionist, a materialist, and I, but I don't agree with him on that. But he talks about how in processing, uh, for example, vision, there's the V1 and V2 areas and then it moves up the signal, the visual signals move up to a higher area. And by the tests that he and his laboratory in Paris have done, they can tell, they think, markers of consciousness, when a percept becomes conscious, not in V1 and V2, but higher. So that suggested to me, well, I looked at my numerograms, which are, I, I don't try to draw an exact number. I try to sort of a pro let the hand draw something that's going to approximate a number. And that takes sometimes two or three tries before I get a number out of it. So it's a two-step process. Is that similar to what's happening with the V1 and V2 and V4? Will, it, will a two-step process enhance the ability to get numbers and words? As a parallel to that, the other method that I use for every single lottery I've tried in these recent years is what I call visualization and thought. I have an imaginary beach. I go down to that beach for a given path I take, and I have a TV set on the beach. I push the button, and there's an image that appears on the screen that hopefully is the number. That's my intention. But sometimes there's no number. There's just a thought that pops into my head. So that, too, is, is a two-step process. So I want to explore that in future months, looking at past numbers, not future numbers, to see if that two-step process has any parallel to what Dehane is describing as what we do in perception. We better, for the benefit of our viewers, define what you meant by V1 and V2, because you lost me there. Well, they're visual areas of perception in columns, at least many uh, neuroscientists think so. And when you, the light comes in f through the uh, eye, but it, it then passes up through various uh, assemblies of neurons, V1 and V2 are the first ones it comes to, and then it goes to higher areas. Dehane lays all this out in many of his books and articles. And it's only recently, well, seven years or so, that they've been finding markers of consciousness that indicate what, what, when a person's aware of something that's processed subconsciously. So since we're all about intention and subconscious processing and remote viewing, I read everything I can by Dehane and others to try to gain some insight. And after these years, it seems like this one at least produced some lottery wins, which I think is the first time anyone's documented 
for example, I went for uh, eight months with a positive return on investment on pick threes and pick four on pick fours, not just pick threes. So it's it's fascinating. The whole area is fascinating, and uh, it's just wonderful to be able to take part in this. For people who aren't, as you are, totally immersed in the field of precognition and applied precognition and associative remote viewing, a lot of the terms we're throwing around are going to seem completely meaningless. We're going to lose some of our viewers because of that. And of course, the viewers who are part of the remote viewing community will follow what you're saying. But I think to summarize what you've just said, I think, uh, let me know if this is correct. I think what you're saying is that Dehane and his colleagues have identified certain areas of the nervous system of the brain, V1 and V2, layers of the visual cortex that are involved in processing visual signals. And they associate that with different stages of consciousness. And you're trying to develop uh, a methodology that is consistent with that. Exactly. And sorry if I was unclear or a little too geeky or whatever. <laughs> I think it's important for the benefit of our viewers to try and step back to, I think of it sometimes as like the kindergarten level for people who are completely inexperienced. And sometimes it's very important to talk about things in the most fundamental way possible. So, for example, why would it be possible for anybody to ever see the future since the future hasn't yet happened? There's a long history, as you know better than me, of dreams and people dreaming future events and those things coming true. So how does that happen? As I say, you know better than me, Jeff, on this, but it's, it's about throughout mankind's entire history, there have been precognitive dreams. So nobody knows the mechanism. But I think probably most of the folks watching this have had dreams that are, uh, have some element of precognition if they think about it. So, you know, there's a lot more to say, but that, that's a basic point. And, and I'm sorry if I've been, again, too uh, whatever, <laughs> geeky. To step back once again, your philosophy seems to be very pragmatic. You're saying, I'm not worried about uh, the philosophy, why it happens, or how it happens, but it does seem to happen. And if we can make it work in some practical way, that'll be of benefit to the field as a whole. And that seems to be your motive, even more than personal enrichment. Yes, absolutely. And if, if you permit me to, to cite Karl Marx in his thesis on Feuerbach, he said, you know, the point is to change society and, and or to change things, to be practical. And any uh, theory that's unrelated to practice is just academic. And I came out of an academic background, you know, very good colleges, and I value what I got there. But I do think that practice is, uh, is, is very important. And if I could just add this, in, in college, uh, the professor said, you know, Bishop Barclay said to be is to be perceived. And Samuel Johnson allegedly refuted that by kicking the stone. And the professor said, how ridiculous. I said to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't, I'm, I'm with Samuel Johnson on this. So to me, it's like to be and to be perceived are two different things. Um, and I, for example, and I raise this because people in, in remote viewing say, well, we create our own reality. 
meaning that literally, not just perception, but but creation of our reality. And I think in terms of intentions and manifestations, maybe there's some truth to that. But in terms of creating reality, let's consider that what was there before humans or any hominids came on the earth? What was on earth? Was the earth existing? Uh, did it take an observation to bring the earth into existence? My point on the view, point of view of that is that if there were any of conscious beings around like in UFOs and they, they flew by that thing that we call the earth, it was there, but they perceived it according to their own perceptual abilities, like anybody would, like an ant would. You perceive according to your perceptual abilities, but that doesn't mean you're creating a reality out of whole crop. So to that extent, I'm a materialist. How interesting. There are probably only a handful of materialists in the remote viewing community. I think Ed May, one of the major researchers in the field, would be in agreement with you. His view is that uh, consciousness is an emergent property, and that kind of solves the problem of, of the qualia of the, our senses of red and smell and so forth. I don't, you know, in terms of quantitative change moving into qualitative change, which is a, another Marxist thing, um, yes, ice gets colder, and so it, it has a different properties, but it's still the same chemicals. But you're talking about neurons creating somehow consciousness arising within neurons, and you can't just wave your hands and say, you know, it's, a, it's a, some sort of an emergent property to me. So that gets into a whole other area about panpsychism and whether consciousness exists in everything. Joe McMonagle said at APP conferences, he thinks that chair there, you see that chair there, that chair is trying to be the best chair it can be. So the consciousness goes down into to that level. And I'm sort of agnostic on that. Again, I, I try to, st I do read a lot of theory. I love reading about mainstream um, parapsychological research and, 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 and non-parapsychological research, but I do try to stick with practical results. Now, you know what, John, earlier you mentioned, and I uh, have pre-recorded an introduction. I didn't bring this out. You're, the colleges that you went to, I think it's useful to let our viewers know you're a graduate of Harvard University. Uh, many people describe it as the best in the world. And you have a master's degree, I think, in literature at, from UC Berkeley, my alma mater. All right. Yes. And you've got the only uh, PhD in parapsychology from that institution. Yeah, I certainly learned a lot in those schools, but there's a lot that uh, there's kind of hidebound thinking, too, uh, particularly regarding psi, PSI, not to mention Marxism. Are there other people in the Marxist community? Are you still in touch with who? Uh, do they have an opinion about your work in uh, remote viewing and precognition? I am in touch with some, and because I was, you know, I'm from New England, fairly uh, conservative in some ways, and uh, since they respected my work there, when I tell them about remote viewing, they're, they're polite, and some of them are more than polite. They're actually quite interested, but I'm not really in touch with any Marxist groups. I did spend 20 years uh, in progressive movements and against the Vietnam War and so forth, um, but there's very few, there's two or three in the remote viewing field who keep quiet that they're also Marxist. So. Well, I think it's fascinating because back in the days of the Soviet Union, there was quite a bit of parapsychology research going on. It seems as if it's not necessarily incompatible with Marxism. Yeah, Ed May has an interesting point of view on that. He said that uh, 
the, the Soviet Union maintained some of its traditions from the Russian Orthodox Church and from shamanism, um, and so that it was able to flourish, and that Stalin used to go to church, actually, <laughs> on Tuesdays or something like that. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so here's an interesting thing. So Ingo Swan wrote a book called When the Soviet Union Takes Over the United States or something like that. I, I have a copy, which was provided by the estate. And very interesting in there, Ingo was militantly anti-Soviet, and uh, he was a Republican. But he says the Soviet Union was state capitalist. Now, that's the same line that the groups I was part of held. We were not supporters of the Soviet Union in recent decades. We felt it had become state capitalist. So, of course, uh, really none of this has much relevance to what I do in remote viewing, but it's my, my background, and, and uh, I do at least bring some things about it. Uh, the whole subject of dialectics, which we don't have time to get into, I'm sure, also has a... Has a up, uh, because dialectics is the unity and struggle of opposites as you boil it down in Marxism. And if you have binary ARV, you've got two opposites going. So that's a whole other discussion. And another relevant discussion to all of this is the question of language itself. When we use a label like Marxism, it, it's, it sort of gives people the impression that maybe they know what, what we mean by a word like that, what we're referring to. And uh, chances are a label like that tells us only a tiny little bit of what, what is being implied. Absolutely, because there are all sorts of uh, varieties of Marxism. It's just splintered, like the churches. After Jesus Christ, the church splintered and splintered, and so after Marx, the Marxism splintered and splintered. And then so people say, well, so you bring up socialism, and, and there's different forms of socialism. So uh, I've uh, reached the, the point that I think we need something in this country, like uh, Scandinavian socialism, so-called, uh, something like that not the hard socialism that existed in the societies that uh, became deformed as they tried to make a socialist revolutions. Um, so I think that's a reasonable position. I think without using that word, if you look at government programs, many people want to go there. So hopefully we will move in that direction and not this other tendency that's, that's raised its head. Let's consider all of this in the light of the idea that humanity as a whole is evolving to the point where skills such as precognition and remote viewing are slowly and with much effort becoming uh, acquired by the human population. I think from a socialist perspective, one would say that this talent should be shared by the collective of, of society. It shouldn't belong to a group of elite remote viewers. How, how do you feel about that? Absolutely. But it's so scary that uh, both uh, any country that has a government structure is concerned about remote viewing uh, and its, its inroads into what it can do, its secrets it can reveal. So there's no existing government that's going to uh, embrace it. And I remember back when I was first learning remote viewing with Prudence Calabrese in Transdimensional Systems, she said, my goal is, you know, that we should have remote viewing taught in the schools and everything like that. That was, you know, 20 years ago. And that's not going to happen. It doesn't make me an anarchist. I still think we need governments. But they're even and I think some of the governments uh, like China and Japan and Russia are still exploring it, uh, remote viewing and psi. 
they naturally they would and the u.s probably has a hidden program too although there's no evidence that we know of about because governments maintain secrets and because remote viewing clairvoyance precognition telepathy would seem to be means by which those secrets can be unearthed. Governments in general don't want the population to uh, cultivate these abilities, and, and so they get suppressed. And at the same time, these very governments probably realize that they could take advantage of these abilities if they could have a secret cadre of remote viewers who could find out what other governments are up to. Absolutely. But again, you know, Ingo did train a second group of people. I don't know if there was like a dozen who were more, much more sort of efficient. And he didn't speak about them before he died. And there's nothing that I found in the uh, remote viewing archives of Ingo Swan at the University of West Georgia to speak to that. But there was a second cadre, in other words, uh, that pursued that. And to think the government would totally abandon that, just I don't, I don't buy that. And of course, Ed May has been over to Russia. And what's curious, you know, during the, the Cold War, they were enemies, the parapsychologists in Russia and the ones in the U.S. But Joe's been over there, Joe McMonagall and Angela Ford. And now uh, Ed's, you know, buddies with them. Uh, so that now that the government's have, over there has changed uh, and so they can, they can be friendly and, and, and carry on, which is <laughs> remarkable to think about since they were at each other's throats. Uh, as governments back then. Well, as I recall, Ed May was hoping to propose some joint projects with the United States and Russia to cultivate remote viewing capabilities. And at least to my knowledge, it's, it's never been funded. I think you're right. I think he proposed that to some government agency, but I'm not sure. And it never did happen. Absolutely. But there's some amazing tales in his books, uh, his book about the Soviet Union and the experiences that Joe McMonagall and others had when they went over there. Well worth reading, as well as the Stargate archives. Might as well mention that. That's four volumes that sums up the Stargate program, which was the remote viewing program that $23 million or so over 20 years. Uh, and this is uh, a readable, I mean, it's expensive, but for people who really want to get into it, look at the Stargate Archives by Ed May and Sonali Bad Marwaha. We are at a point in history where there is now a very substantial literature on remote viewing, precognition, parapsychology, and a growing interest. I think at this point in time, there are probably well over 10,000 people who are engaged at some level in the practice of remote viewing, although maybe only a few have reached the level of commitment that you've expressed over 20 years. Yes, I think there has been an upsurge in remote viewing from the general public. public. For example, uh, the, the Reddit group, uh, which is the equivalent of Facebook, um, had 12,000 members a few months ago. They're now up to 40,000. They're the largest social media group. And the largest Facebook group is around 10,000. And I think it's through accumulation of people appearing on podcasts and coast to coast and so forth. But I have to say, some of us in the field think that uh, the intelligence agencies have been keeping a clamp on the development of remote viewing these past 20 years or so uh, through, through various means. And now that seems to be broken open a bit so that for sure, way more people are coming in uh, 
every day. You can see it on the, uh, I'm an I'm uh, admin on one of the Facebook groups, and every day there's five or six people posting for the first, first time, and on Reddit, again, it's exploding. So, yes, I think there's increased interest, and uh, it gets tied up with, uh, with UFOs, too, which is another fascinating area. Um, so some people consider that uh, very negatively for remote viewing, but there is a strong tie there. And uh, that's, again, another topic, but something also I looked into quite a bit over 20 years with UFOs. The upshot of all of this is, since the general attitude is that remote viewing is, is a learnable skill that anybody can acquire with enough diligence, like any other difficult skill, let's say, like advanced mathematics or something along those lines, or, or music. It is very significant for the future of the human race that these skills are generally being absorbed into the population. Do you have any thoughts about that? So Ingo Swan said that it's sort of built into us that we have humans that we have these abilities, but we haven't developed them yet. So he felt that it was a species-wide ability. On the other extreme, someone like Ed May uh, says that he, from his experience, which is very extensive, that this one percent of the population maybe is really good at it. And Joe McMonagle has tended to take that point of view too. Um, there's also the question of, of training and how you train. I'm. Uh, I, I differ with Ed May on the point about controlled remote viewing and other so-called methods. I think they are, they can work, they do work. If you look at the two uh, leading uh, groups that actually have uh, companies, uh, one's in Paris uh, called IRIS, and they actually have go government agencies and others that are uh, using their services uh, under Alexis Champion. And then Gail Husick's group up in Seattle has a functioning remote viewing group with clients. And the fact that there are only two, and they all they use only CRV, they only use control, control remote viewing in those two groups. But the fact that there are only two such groups after all these years, I mean, there may other few smaller groups and individuals, but in terms of uh, those that are really practicing and having clients, it shows how difficult it is to build a remote viewing business because it's a very uh, difficult um, matter to get 100, you can't get 100% accuracy, you can get maybe 70, 65% accuracy, depending on how you measure it. Well, one of the uh, terms that you just mentioned that some of our viewers may not be familiar with is CRV, or Controlled Remote Viewing. And I think, of course, we've done interviews with Lynn Buchanan, one of the major teachers of CRV, but we should let our viewers know this is a particular method I guess it was originated by Ingo Swan, and for many purists, it's considered the, the best way to learn remote viewing. Yeah, there are two perspectives on, on this. One came out of Stanford Research Institute with Ed May and, and Russell Targ and others who don't believe in what's called method remote viewing. In other words, Ed May, when I did an experiment, uh, example for him, we were testing something out, he just said target, and I'm supposed to do my do my session, which I did uh, for ARV actually. And he said it was industrial strength, so it came out well. But that method is sometimes called generic or natural remote viewing, where you don't have any steps, you don't have any um, templates, you don't have any particular instructions. You just get your impressions and produce your session. The other 
approach is based on control remote viewing, which has a series of six steps or more. There's been a big debate about how many steps there were. And others have taken the control remote viewing and developed uh, offshoots of it. There's scientific remote viewing, there's technical remote viewing. The one I learned was called transdimensional remote viewing, which did, uh, which was a descendant of uh, scientific remote viewing, which was a descendant of technical remote viewing. So in these methods, you have given steps and you start with an ideogram, which is a, a mark that your hand makes automatically based on its supposed connection with the target. And some people say that ideogram contains all the information you ever want to know, so you you probe it. But also there are other steps where you get initially uh, sensory information, dimensional information in the next step. Eventually you start drawing, and you go through six steps, or in transdimensional systems you have a different number of steps. So I favored this method because I've seen it work, uh, and so uh, I was, I've been fortunate enough to know Ed May, and we differ on that point. I don't think Ed and, and Joe McMonagall really understand that uh, control remote viewing and its offshoots actually have a lot of contributions to make and have contributed in terms of these companies that exist and individuals too. So there's just a, a barrier there about that. For myself, John, I first experienced remote viewing in 1976 at the SRI International, I think it was then called the Stanford Research Institute, and I simply went into their shielded room with Russell Targ, and he said, close your eyes and let your subconscious give your, ask your subconscious mind to give you access to target information, and boom, out came an accurate description. I think it works very well for people like that, typically the first time they do it. But to do it consistently over and over again, given the social pressure and many of the subconscious beliefs that this is impossible or it's magical or maybe it's even demonic, that the rigor of the CRV method is probably very helpful for people who need to you know, get over that hump. Right. Some people thrive on it and some people find it uh, very uh, limiting and move to other methods or some even just prefer to have the natural method or someone like Angela Ford, who's one of the Ed May's three viewers that he's used, the top viewers, she channels her information. So the remote viewing itself refers to the protocol where it's intentional, it's blind, that is the viewer does not know the target and a couple of other um, characteristics that vary depending on whether it's in the laboratory or it's done for a client. Because with a client, sometimes a little front-loading, as we call it, where you, the viewer may know that it's a, a place or something, uh, can actually speed the process up. And there have been many successful applications of that by Angela Thompson and many other folks, uh, Angela Thompson-Smith and many other folks, too. Yeah. If things were to progress for the next, let us say, 500 years at the same rate they've been going for the last 50 years, what, what do you imagine our society would be like at that time? Well, it's interesting because, of course, Joe McMonagall wrote uh, The Time Machine, where he pro 
goes into the future, but he's recently said he, he tried that and he doesn't feel the book was all that successful. Stephen Schwartz has conducted a couple of experiments uh, when I was a viewer for one of them, along with hundreds of other people for 2050 and 2060, what's happening there. And I came up, uh, Deborah Katz, my co-author, was my interviewer, and it was fascinating just to go to 2060 and see what's around. Uh, I had some unusual uh, uh, descriptions of things that existed in stores. But um, 500 years, that's, that's, that's a really long time. Um, so I, I don't go there. I, Gustav Mahler said that, my, one of my favorite composers said that music only lasts about 500 years. And in, in 1910, he, he, when he died, he said, my time will come, 1960. And it did indeed come in 1960. But so whether in 500 years we're at all, you know, whether we have uh, androids or others that are telepathic, uh, it's a whole other subject. But I, I have some thoughts about that, too, based on ex extensive reading in the UFO literature, um, that those are not totally... Uh, uh, wild ideas, those things may come to pass. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts about it. If you read the UFO literature, there's a great deal of telepathy in it. And, of course, that's what Ingo Swan was exploring to a great, great amount extent, too, and had direct experiences of. So when you read these books, and there seem to be sometimes Nordic creatures who are tall and, and uh, look like us, but there are also these helpers that are shorter ones. I mean, there's quite a variety in the UFO literature of the kinds of creatures, but some of them seem to be helpers who have a kind of artificial consciousness, a form of artificial consciousness, and whose eyes are constructed. Um, so that raises the whole question about whether or not consciousness can inhabit a, uh, a self-consciousness, can inhabit an, an artificial being. And we have Kurzweil and others talking about the singularity where a robot wakes up, as it were. I've been reading some, watching some movies about this lately, uh, Philip K. Dick thing, very, very fascinating stuff. So I do think that there'll be forms of artificial consciousness, but I don't, I, you know, whether there's a soul, I'm not sure. Um, I hope so. I <laughs> uh, hope there's reincarnation too, but um, I'm agnostic on that. I just, but I, based on this rather flimsy uh, evidence of UFOs, I would say that artificial consciousness is definitely possible and is coming. Where humanity is heading with the, the development of parapsychological abilities may be to enter into a brave new world that could include contact with. Uh, extra-dimensional or extraterrestrial beings, as well as uh, uh, beings of an artificial nature. What bothers me and worries me more is the, is the course that humanity seems to be headed on right now. Joe McMonagle spoke about that the other day on the Daz chat. Daz Smith has a chat, and he's pretty pessimistic about the future, about reduced populations uh, in terms of uh, you know, climate change and all of that. I'm much more concerned about where we're going, and, and hopefully we can turn it around. And uh, under those circumstances, the development of psychic uh, abilities is not likely to really uh, take place in the way it could if, if we were to achieve a peaceful uh, worldwide community. You seem to be uh, saying that humanity is on a destructive trajectory right now and with so much momentum that the development of parapsychological skills in the human population may not be enough to make a difference. 
You put it better than I did, Jeff. Yes. Well, John Knowles, this has been a very stimulating and informative conversation about an area uh, that I think is of great significance to humanity. So, thank you very much for being with me today. You're a great interviewer, Jeff. Thanks very much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.